There's a saying in the cross-country skiing community, only the mediocre are at their best all the time. If you're just going in the gym every day and you're doing the same thing and you think you're just killing it, you're not. You've just established this nice median baseline for what you're doing. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Brett Jones, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. Super excited to sit down with you. Emily, it's great to be on and have the opportunity to uh, chat with you in the audience. Yeah, so I think we first met maybe seven years ago. I took an FMS1 Functional Movement Systems 1-2 course, kind of combo in the same weekend, Mm -hmm. which was a deep dive. And it was super helpful in our practice of rehab and strength training and using the FMS assessment. And then down the road, I did the level one strong first SFG instructor course. Awesome. After, yeah. After taking a day course with Phil Scarito mm-hmm. and uh, totally changed how I saw the body from a chiropractic lens to really believing in what strong first talks about is like students of strength. So can you just talk about how life has changed now that you are director of education for strong first? Certainly. So it's been uh as the Grateful Dead noted many years ago, what a long, strange trip it's been. Uh, I got my first kettlebell in late 01. I took uh, the Pavel's second ever workshop in February of 02. Started teaching with him in April of 03. So 16 years of of traveling, teaching with Pavel. Been teaching with Functional Movement Systems since 06. I've actually known Gray since 95. Over the years, it's certainly been this uh, very interesting progression in the early days, it was a very organic kind of teaching situation where Pavel would be up there and I'd hop in and say, hey, what about this? And then somebody else would hop in, what about this? And we would, we, and that's really, you know, the curriculum was in so much in development at that time and, and was really just this really organic thing that we were shaping. How many students would be like back then when that was happening? Like how many students were in the, the space, in the room? The first... Wow. Um, Several years of the certifications were outdoors, actually in St. Paul, Minneapolis. Oh, wow. And so we would host uh, several on the non-frozen months of of, uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul year. And um, we would have anywhere from 50 to 120 folks out there. I was at the second ever. There were 22. And it just kind of grew from there to where we could ballpark 70 to 100 plus uh, at at a workshop. Then, you know, fast forward to the development. At that time, we were all just senior instructors. And then I was made a master instructor. And, and, uh, and of course, now we have 12 to 14 other master instructors that are part of our teaching group. And then development of uh, the chiefs. We, we had uh, chief instructors there for a little while for the three branches. And then we recognized that what we needed to do was, was pull everything together as a school of strength. And having three branches within that school, we needed something to coordinate and really bring the curriculum principles together and, and make sure you know, everything was, was uh, pointed the same direction. And so that led to me becoming director of education for Strong First. And that role, I look at it in, in two phases. It's leadership. It's uh, working with 
our other members of leadership and team leaders, seniors, masters, but also within the Strong First community itself. So I've taken people make a living, feed their families based on what we teach. And I, I take that very, very seriously from a leadership perspective that I, I, I understand kind of the responsibility uh, that's involved in that. And for people who don't know the three schools, can you just break them out really quick? Certainly. So within Strong First, we have, of course, best known for our kettlebell certifications in education. We Call also, it the gold standard in kettlebell dreams. <laughs> 100%, 100%. So we have our kettlebell branch, we have uh, barbell and uh, body weight. So we have the Strong First Lifter certification, which is our barbell uh, certification and our, our one-day barbell course. We have our SFB, which is Strong First Body Weight, and our body weight course, and uh, of course the SFG one and two, and the kettlebell course to go along with that. So I'm in the process of wrapping up the curriculum update for moving into 2019. It's spilled over from 2018 because now there are seven manuals and seven instructor guides to update and make sure we've got everything dialed in. So we've been doing a lot. No uh, small feat. Oh, it's, it's, it's been really, really amazing. So it's, it's been a real interesting progression. And I, and I think that uh, we're intent on pursuing our mission to pursue, promote, and practice strength because we believe strength has a greater purpose. That's what's driving yeah. us. And what's that greater purpose? So, you know, when people see us, we talk about whether they're doing dance cardio or a hit class that everyone needs strength. Everyone needs to learn how to move load, manage load. Can you talk about why you think strength is important? Certainly. That moniker, that part of our mission, because we believe strength has a greater purpose, part of our code, that goes in a couple different directions. Strength is not just physical. Developing physical strength is a, uh, an avenue towards greater mental strength, I believe. But what strength is to an individual will, will vary. For some, it's recovering from an injury. For some, it's the ability to work two jobs and put food on the, on the table for their family. There's many different ways that, that strength is displayed. My wife and I just went to a dance performance, a Jane Austen dance group, and just amazing. I mean, you just you watch these uh, guys and gals uh, get up there and, and, and dance, and the, the leaps and the skill, and, and that's a, just a beautiful display of strength. So strength is a many-faceted thing. So acknowledging that, when we focus on the development of physical strength, as Metvi have said, strength is the master quality. All other physical qualities are based upon that. It's the starting point for the development of everything else that you want to do. I sometimes get credit for this quote, but I, I got it from Eric Cressy. Strength is the glass. All other physical qualities go in the glass. So the bigger the glass, the more other physical qualities can be developed. So that's why we focus on strong, the name of the company, the mission, strong first, because we do believe that master quality is worth developing and is a foundation for everything else that you're going to do. You talk about how, and this might be just kind of a combination of FMS and strong first, how someone might appear strong, right? Like a physical aesthetic hypertrophy, but may not truly display strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. If you go back into the, the 50s and 60s, there was this golden era of physical culture in the States. And we've phased in and out of that over time. Uh, but the 50s and 60s, you can look at Dave Draper, segue a little bit further forward into Schwarzenegger. And, and you know, we had these bodybuilders. 
who were also powerlifters, who also focused on developing strength. The 80s gave us the action hero look, <laughs> the, the bodybuilding action hero look that everybody started to, uh, not everybody, but people started to aspire to. And I've said for a long time, big isn't strong, strong is strong. Yeah, and, I love uh, that. People will focus on, uh, on how they look, but that focus towards how you, and you can, I mean, you can accomplish uh, physique goals if you look at uh, Fabio Zonin, our uh, head of Strong First, our CEO, for lack of a better term, guy that's competed in bodybuilding and powerlifting and has a, a tremendous physique but is as strong as he looks. And so that's always the dichotomy. So to your point, somebody can look very impressive but just not be able to, say, put up the same numbers or move fluidly. And that, you know, to tie in with a little bit of FMS there, the logo or the saying for FMS is move well, move often. And if you drill down on that just a little bit, what we mean is you need to be able to move well enough to adapt in a positive fashion to the stress you're going to be placed under. The goal of training is to apply stress and accommodate, adapt to that stress. Well, if you can't move well enough to be able to adapt in a positive fashion, that's a short trip. Uh, and I think a lot of people would, would maybe recognize the idea that they've tried a fitness routine or tried to start getting fit multiple times and they always end up stopping. Maybe it's an achy knee, an achy shoulder, or it just doesn't quite feel right. You know, it's, it's an intangible that they can't really put their finger on. And that usually is a case of not moving well enough to be able to adapt in a positive fashion. So we always keep moving as a base. And that's how Greg kind of got interested in Pavel was uh, his book, The Naked Warrior, where he was talking about the one-arm push-up and the single-leg squat, the pistol. And this idea that you should be able to do these exercises and equally on both sides, symmetry of strength. And Graves has kind of gotten tagged more with like a symmetry of movement sort of perspective, mm -hmm. but uh, he really has a symmetry of strength perspective as well. And we did talk about that in our kettlebells from the center dynamic video and, and, and manual. So kind of a, a winding response there. When you look at sports that uh, have weight classes, you'll see power lifters that stay in the same weight class. You'll see Olympic lifters that stay in the same weight class wrestlers, uh, you know, these sports that, that really have a, a weight component to them for competition and categories, you'll see people staying in the same weight class yet increasing their levels of strength over time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we can divorce size from strength and build strength always. Yeah. Going back to this idea of move well and move often. So oftentimes we kind of see people who will separate their mobility from their strength. So they're like, I do 20 to 30 minutes of a mobility routine, and then I do my workout strength. We're going to banish workout training. <laughs> and um, I've heard you say that you have seen changes in mobility with just a good kettlebell program or a good programming. Absolutely. It's always a combination. I mean, the idea that we should move our joints through their available range of motion and, and maintain the quality of that movement over time is, is that's, that's part of being an active human being. And our lives now can be so sedentary from a, a sociological or a anthropological perspective. If you're not hunting and gathering for eight to 10 hours a day, you are sedentary. So most of us are, most of us are sedentary <laughs> rather. I'm rather sedentary. Um, my iPhone, which of course tracks everything that we do, the little health app, I'll pull that up at some days and I'll, I'll realize uh, how little 
I have moved uh, that day and I, I need to pick up my own number of steps per day. So there, there is this idea that uh, we are uh, fairly sedentary at this point and we do need to move. Well, that's just good daily movement. When we segue to training, to our physical practice of developing strength, a well-designed routine that takes you through full ranges of motion and is appropriately programmed for recovery should enhance your movement. You should move better as a result of your training. And I think a lot of folks, we've reached a point kind of where we almost expect to have a ding, have, have an ache, have a, a problem or be stiffer or you know, have something happen from our training that really isn't, shouldn't be there. Like uh, I maintain a pretty good strength practice and uh, I've, I still move pretty well. I've accumulated my mileage over the years. Uh, I'm, I'm not a garage kept single owner that was only driven to church. I have, uh, <laughs> have accumulated mileage and have always uh, maintained a good, good practice. Yeah. What makes a great program? I know Strong First has a programming course. You know, you mentioned full range of motion, moving better. I think sometimes trainers struggle with programming because they're trying to meet the expectations of their student or the person they're training. And sometimes that expectation is to work hard, play hard, like to get a workout that kills it. And I find people will tell me it's hard to find a program where you're working on skill and strength and meeting that expectation of a sweaty, hard training session. So what makes a good program in your opinion? Meeting the expectation, I mean, you nailed it, the expectations of the person coming in because what, where they're getting their information from social media now, predominantly, fitness magazines, whatever celebrity has whatever, business insider or whatever had a, uh, they had a story a couple of years ago and it was top 10 fitness influencers because that's the social media term. You're an influencer, <laughs> top 10. And I recognized one of the names, I didn't recognize anyone else. And they were shirtless or scantily clad, um, more fitness models who had these very successful Instagram accounts and things like that. And so we, we see movie uh, actors preparing for a role. We see these you know, ultra intense workouts and, and we perceive these things. We look at maybe a sprinter and we think, wow, that, you know, they must be doing some really intense training. And they are. However, when you really drill down on how the sprinter trains, an elite sprinter, 100 meter, somebody competing 100 meters, might be doing 60 meter repeats, but so they'll run a, an intense, you know, 90% plus effort, 60 meter sprint. They'll rest for upwards of 15 minutes before they run another one. Now, they're not just laying down doing nothing. They might be doing some mobility work in between. They might be doing some fast and loose drills to learn, uh, enhance the recovery and relaxation. That, you know, there be, might be some things interspersed in that 15-minute uh, recovery session. But they're resting that long. So when we go to the track and we think, I'm going to do some intervals, I'm going to do some repeats, like we might run a lap, maybe rest as long as that lap took us, and then run again. Whereas uh, somebody who was training to run the 400 meters would have a vastly different program in place. So those expectations coming through the door, we, we see these boot camp type things where, and the biggest mistake in, in taking that mentality is those are workouts that are designed to identify people, not develop. We're, these are two different avenues. 
So people come in thinking they want these intense workouts that are almost designed to identify people who can succeed in this particular avenue. What we really want to be doing is developing these physical qualities. And development of physical qualities usually means resting for far longer than you think you should be. I recently made a change in my training based off of something that Pavel has coming out here before too long. And for some of the first times in about 18 years, I turned off my timer app and gave myself the rest that I needed. And I'm, I'm definitely seeing some, some good results from that. So the intensity of effort in the set can be excellent. It can be very challenging, but we need to rest long enough. And I, and I think that's, that's the expectation thing. And that's why it's so hard for a trainer. So there has to be some education uh, in order to get some buy-in from the, from the student. Now, if the student wants to just be beat up a little bit, they're tired, sweaty, battling ropes are an excellent alternative. There, there are safe ways to give somebody that intense finish to the workout. But the education over time to get them to understand that uh, there's a saying in the cross-country skiing community, only the mediocre are at their best all the time. If you're just going in the gym every day and you're doing the same thing and you think you're just killing it, you're not. You've just established this nice median baseline for what you're doing. What training should look like is a little bit more like the stock market where we've got these highs and lows. We've got this variation. If you look at the stock market over a very long period of time, it looks like it's an upward line. But if you condense and look at a more specific time frame, you see these wide variations. So I challenge people all the time at workshops. When was the last time you went in the gym and had a purposefully easy session? Oh, how many hands go up? <laughs> very, few, very few hands go up. So people go in and they think they need to kill it every time they're in the gym. Acknowledging those expectations and having some education uh, that helps people, the student understand why the program is designed the way it is, is, is how we get around that. Yeah. You touched briefly on fast and loose. And I think one of the beautiful things that Strong First does is teaches students how to build tension and then how to, I don't know what the word would be, to let go of that tension. Can you just talk about the importance of knowing how to do both? Absolutely. Yeah, the company is Strong First, not Strong Only. So, <laughs> yeah. so the, the development of strength, and, and when you look at most people, they kind of sit in this middle zone where they, they don't know how to get fully tense and they don't know how to fully relax. And so they walk around with this kind of middle level of, of residual tension continually. The idea of the tension techniques, obviously, to, to enhance your strength, to be able to display safely your strength. Uh, the key there is what Pavel calls the dominata which is enough tension to enhance the lift, but tension is not the goal of the lift. The goal is to press a kettlebell, if I'm doing a military press. The goal is not to be as tense as possible. The goal is to have enough tension to enhance the lift. But then in between, we need to know how to relax. And relaxation is actually a skill, and actually a third of a muscle's ATP goes to relaxation. The sarcoplasmic reticulum and the way the calcium is pumped in and out um, it actually takes a lot of energy, and, and relaxation occurs slower than contraction. Contraction actually happens pretty rapidly, but then the process of relaxation takes a little bit longer. So knowing how to shake off the residual tension that is developed from strength practice uh, is, is important for two reasons. One is recovery. When you have tension in a muscle, you actually restrict blood flow. So creating relaxation promotes a return of blood flow and recovery. From a physical perspective or, or just a, a movement perspective, 
relaxation is a key to efficient movement. So somebody that looks really good moving is usually able to go from very high levels of tension to very high levels of relaxation very quickly. In fact, there was a study in Russia that uh, elite kind of world-class competitors relaxed about 800 times faster, 800% faster than the next level down, like regional competitors. So when you see somebody that's able to move very fluidly, efficiently, even when you see a UFC fighter or a boxer, they're very relaxed. They throw a punch. There's a ton of tension at the develop at the delivery of that punch, and then they go back to complete relaxation. So it's a critical skill. Two sides of the same coin. Yeah, we often try to teach people that you want to create enough tension to match the load, and oftentimes it's through the breath. Maybe from a little bit of FMS meets SFG. Can you just talk about the breath that's used in Strong First and how that helps create tension? Certainly. If we just look at breathing from the movement performance standpoint, not drilling down on cellular respiration, gas exchange, and all that other stuff, there are two basic breathing styles. There's an anatomical match and a biomechanical match. An anatomical match style means that when you get compressed, air gets forced out. When you extend, air gets drawn in. Just works with the living bellows that we are. That is great for relaxation and stretching and uh, movement practice, mobility practice, however we want to term that. Now, flip that coin, and the biomechanical breathing match means when we get compressed, we actually sniff air in to create interabdominal pressure, and as we extend, we actually force air out. So in a swing, for example, if, or a deadlift, if I'm hinging down to grab the kettlebell or the bar or hike the kettlebell, I'm going to sniff air in to tight abs, not drawn in and not maximal tension, but tight abs. That's going to create this bubble of intra-abdominal pressure, which does enhance strength, it enhances safety, does a lot of things for us. And then as I'm extending out of that position for the deadlift or swing, I'm having this forced exhale, which actually creates even more intra-abdominal pressure so that I'm stabilizing and handling the forces uh, that I'm developing. So knowing how to sink that breath, I just had a session with someone the other day and and just getting them to sync their breath with the transitions during a getup made a huge difference for them. It is something that can be the true difference maker in uh, performance and strength and movement. When you say a forced exhale, what does that sound like? Because sometimes we'll see people stand up from a deadlift exhale and it's like a like long, slow, <laughs> like they're blowing out a candle. Correct. Um, can you give an example of what a forced exhale might look like or sound like? Sure. So if you focus on something that we teach called power breathing, we tell people to kind of cue pelvic four. And the way we do that is say, pull up your pelvic four like you're trying to stop yourself from going to the bathroom. I think we've all stood in line and had to wait for a restroom and <laughs> we know what this is like. Then you're going to sniff air in and then as you exhale, you put your tongue behind your teeth uh, and you create a small opening restricted opening for that air to go through just like putting your thumb over a garden hose and so we have this nice forced exhale and we're on camera i don't know if this is going to be uh put up with the video or if it's it just it okay yeah boy i shouldn't have been doing that then um <laughs> but hopefully everybody could see my face was actually fairly relaxed my mouth was creating a little bit of a part of that small opening but my face is relaxed. I didn't, you know, there wasn't any grunting or groaning. <laughs> I didn't do, do the whole 
Hulk neck. Face. It looked like you were in pain. <laughs> exactly. So that sort of forced exhale creates greater abdominal contraction and helps amp things up as well. Nice. You said that when you swing, and swinging is one of my favorite things, that it's 10 sets of one yes. and that you learn something new every time you swing. Can you talk about that? Because I think creating that awareness around training and not trying to just blow through sets and reps and just get the training session done is, is really important and a really important change in mindset of how we look at our body. 100%. We refer to training as a practice. Dr. Ed Thomas, one of my other mentors, has said that he never went to the gym to work out. He went to the gym to learn. In the process of learning, he got sweaty and tired and had a workout. <laughs> but that was the goal was learning. And the goal was to enhance skill in a goal something. I've been swinging a kettlebell for 18 whatever many years now. And I'm still refining my swing. I'm still learning more about my swing every time I do it. So in the old training systems, they talked about progression, variation, and precision. And progression is a, the learning ramp, not just the 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds. It's, it's a learning ramp uh, towards mastery of a skill, whatever that is. Variation was not just, oh, I've done bicep curls for, you know, standing bicep curls for six weeks, so now I need to sit down and do my bicep curls. It was tools and techniques to assist you on that progression ramp. And then they were looking for precision. When you watch a gymnast and you watch a dancer and you see somebody who really projects and lengthens or has great jazz hands when they're doing, you know, uh, whatever that comes across. Like you, you can really see that there's this high level of precision and skill that's being brought to this. When you watch somebody that's really spent time in Olympic lifting, you can see a very high level of skill. When you see somebody who really gets loaded underneath the bar before their back squat, there's a high level of skill that's being brought to that. And so that's my goal. There's a mindfulness that's brought to the practice and uh, not a mindless accomplishing of reps. And within the swing, even, there's more time than you think there is. There's not enough time to think your way through the swing. The hinge and the pop is happening too quickly. But there is a mindfulness that can be brought to it where you have this awareness of, of what's happening during your swing and things that you can key in on as far as how you're hiking the bell, how you're reconnecting and hiking the bell, or how you're pressurizing, how you're returning to the top. So I think uh, that, that skill aspect and, and looking at these things as skills that we want to develop and get better at is uh, something that does differentiate our concept of a strength practice versus a mindless moving of weight. Does that time, like you have time in the, in the swing, are you talking about once you pop the hips that floats as the bell goes up. Is that the time? It is. Yeah. It is. One of the things I see very often from students is they're concerned with their RPMs, their reps per minute. They're trying to see how quickly they can get 10 reps done. I want to know how long it can take you to do 10 reps. Hmm. And even when we flip that mindset and we get somebody to get away from kind of this panic driven sprint to get these reps done as quickly as possible, and we slow them down, so to speak, where each rep has its moment. The difference in time between those two sets is not that great. It's not like one set took 10 seconds and the other set took 20 seconds. Like it, it's, it's not that kind of difference. But in my practice right now, I'm doing a lot of sets of uh, 10 one-arm swings. 
and it takes me 17, 18 seconds to complete 10 one-arm swings. And that's a ballpark just under two seconds a rep um, and that allowing for just a little bit of float. So that sort of patience, there was an old movie called The Shootist, John Wayne's last movie actually. And uh, he was a famous gunfighter and people were trying to kill him. Everybody wanted to knock him off and become the greatest gunfighter. Ron Howard actually is the actor that plays the kid. Hmm. So anyway, good movie. He's explaining to Ron Howard that he's not the fastest. He's not the fastest draw, but he's purposeful and he aims. When you just jerk your gun and, and, and fire, you, there's no way you had time to aim. So he wasn't slow, but he wasn't the fastest. And so, but he was able to draw and aim better than the other person, hence the greatest gunfighter. So it's just a, a switch in mindset that uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I love that. Can we talk about threshold and fatigue? I think it was you that said, like, unless you're getting paid to hit the next rep of sets, you can stop <laughs> going on like John Wayne. For us, once we see the form start to fall apart, it's like, park the bell. But I think most people want to push through that. You just talk about, like, how does someone know when they're fatiguing or what is their threshold and what that means? <laughs> it, is, it is an interesting thing. I joke at workshops that most of your injury stories usually start with, and I went for one more rep. <laughs> um, yeah. And that, that mindset of I'm going to do anything I can do to accomplish this number, whatever that thing is. And I, I think people begin to adopt that because they think it's a toughness thing and that they're going to develop this toughness as a result of getting those last few reps and not quitting. That's the big thing now, right? You got to grind. Yeah. Grind. Embrace the grind. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you got to know when to stop grinding and pull your hand out of the disposal and quit grinding away on your hand. The metrics that we use for that, we've done some work with the push band, which is a, a wearable accelerometer. Uh, gives you some really good information. You can set it to stop a set when velocity decreases to, by a certain percent, by a certain amount. When you don't have fancy gadgets and things like that, Number one is keep the set short. There's a reason we love sets of five and 10. It's between 10 to 20 seconds of work. You can usually focus and maintain your form for that amount of time. And then you get plenty of rest. So when rep speed starts to slow down, you develop that sense where ah, that, that rep was slower or just didn't feel the same. If your form changes, you probably should have stopped one or two reps ago. So it's really developing this willingness to, to stop. And what I used to do, I, I don't see that many people as students right now, just because I'm rather busy with other stuff. What I used to do is I would constantly, and this won't surprise a lot of people, but I used to constantly mess with my uh, students, meaning I'd tell them to do 10, I'd stop them at five. I'd tell them to do five, I'd let them go to 15. Because if I had a, somebody who wasn't being mindful and was just, you know, we selected a weight because this is what they felt was good for five reps. They did 15. You, you shot low and, and we can do a lot more, but it also got them in the habit of stopping when I asked them to stop. And uh, that's important because what you're paying me for is not to count reps. What you're paying me for is to help you develop skill, develop strength, develop mm -hmm. the qualities that you want. And part of that may be me pulling the plug before you think we should. 
if I could give the fitness world a gift, it would be to remove the repetition mindset. So you're saying kettlebell swings were not meant to be done for a minute and a half straight, <laughs> two and a half <laughs> minutes straight. <laughs> Typically not. There are challenges that you can take on. And I, and I think that's one of the, one of the differences. And, and again, back to the idea of identification versus development. There are challenges you can take on, but not every training session is a challenge. I was talking to Dan John a while back and, and uh, you know, he had his 10,000 swing challenge. Well, people turned that into the like 1 million swing year. And it's like, no, no, I, it was like, this is a month out of a year. Like you can do this, recover from it and see benefit. But if you try to keep, turn that challenge into your daily life, you're probably going to run into some problems. So there is a difference between the challenge and the training. And I think people could do a better job of drawing that line. Yeah. Have you brought aspects of FMS into Director of Education of Strong First? Certainly. I would say these aren't just things I teach. These are things that I do. And uh, live. And probably. live. Yeah. yeah. I believe in these things. And Pavel appreciates what Gray does. Gray appreciates what Pavel does. And there's a tremendous synergy between the groups and mutual respect. And certainly having a, a foot in both worlds, the ability to look at, at these situations and, and just say, this is, this is a better way to do this, or, you know, we should bring this over here. So I, I absolutely try to connect those things as, as often as I can. Yeah. How is Strong First doing different things? I've noticed some different kind of combination moves, like a, like a clean to a lunge, especially when there's, there's so many training systems out there, and especially a lot of online training systems, which I think there's a plus and a minus to that. How is Strong First, yeah, keeping things fresh? As Director of Education, one of the greatest challenges that we face, because we are not the school of, you know, 1.1 million drills. When you come through the SFG Level 1, we focus on six foundational skills. When you come through a Level 2, there's five or six additional skills that are that are added, but based on the original ones. So we are more in the mindset of an inch wide and a mile deep. When you look at something like Olympic lifting or baseball, I caught a little bit of Bull Durham the other day, which was fun. And the manager's going off and saying, this is a simple game. You hit the ball, you catch the ball, you throw the ball. <laughs> like it's, this is a, so players spend lifetimes developing skill in hitting the ball, throwing the ball, catching the ball. Nobody would look twice at an Olympic lifter that's spending a lifetime improving their clean. But within the fitness world, we look at, we, we need, you know, a hundred different things to do. So it is one of our greatest challenges is we're probably not going to add any exercises to the level one curriculum. We're going to keep teaching people these basics because uh, as a spec ops uh, individual told us, great quote that we have in the manual, the elite are just better at the basics than everyone else. It's not the fancy stuff. It's the basics. So within the level two, what we did add were what I've termed athletic drills. And so they are dynamic drills that use some sort of a split stance or a change of level, which is great for athletics. And those can be uh, these split cleans, snatches, slowed down to these step back or step forward versions with just a goblet uh, clean, bringing the kettlebell up uh, to the handles and uh, to the horns in both hands. That sort of stuff is, I wrote an article a while back, uh, spices are main dishes. And these drills are spices. They flavor a routine. Uh, you add a little bit to, to get something uh, extra out of them. They don't become the main dish. 
as much as I love garlic, not a meal, <laughs> not, not a meal you want to have and then be around anyone else. <laughs> That's one of the greatest challenges. And it really takes people buying into and, and appreciating that practice and skill mindset. Yeah. What's your physical reaction when you hear someone call a kettlebell, a cannonball or a kettleball or? <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't care. Um, <laughs> they're, they're interested in the thing that I'm trying to teach. Mm. You know, they, they at least have this, this idea that there's this thing out there they'd like to know more of. And so, oh yeah, I hear them all, kettlebell, cowbell. I had a student who wanted to actually manufacture a bell that had a bell in it so that it would ring uh, as you. <laughs> I do not take myself seriously enough to be upset by that in yeah. any way, shape or form. That, that, to me, that person is saying, hey, I have an interest in this. I don't know quite what it is. And then I can answer that question. I love that. I'm going to take that on. My, my slight cringe, I'm going to let that go. What does your workout look like, your training workout? My current practice and training is aimed towards sinister. So my training takes on a few different phases as a year goes by. I have a level two that I'm teaching uh, in May. And so the level two skills will become part of my training for several weeks prior to that event. Just sharpen up the skills, make sure that when I'm demoing, everything's spot on. And I'm not uh, huffing and puffing because of a new, a new stress that I'm not used to. So my training will morph a little bit as I get closer to that level two. You know, last year there was a phase where I was preparing for the SFL and then a phase where I was preparing for the SFB and I had to teach a level two. And, you know, so there, there's, there's these things that uh, morph my training as the year goes by. But right now the training is focused towards sinister. So I have a day of uh, 48 kilo one arm swings and then I have a day of 56 kilo two and uh, now some one arm swings and then mix in some get-ups and, and things of that nature. So it's a very, uh, ye yesterday I, I threw in a strength aerobic session, clean press, squat, snatch, set it down, shake it off, do it on the other side, just accumulated sets for 15 minutes. <laughs> and uh, the reason I did that, that was supposed to be a 56 kilo swing day. My 56 kilo is on my third floor office that is currently <laughs> below zero. So I was like, I'm not doing that. Uh, so, but, but that's, you know, I'd say three or four days a week, primarily three, hit the swings and just building towards sinister. Do you mix in other stuff? I think way back in FMS, you said you did yoga, which I think the whole room gasped for like a half second. <laughs> <laughs> Still like yoga. So ground force method and some FMS drills are, are really, that's my movement prep. That's how I get warmed up or ready uh, for a session and reaching the ripe old age of uh, 48 later this year and having accumulated a little bit of mileage as the years go by, having some warm-up time is appreciated by my body. And then I go into some get-ups. So the, the movement variability that I get via GFM and some FMS drills and, and you could, is it GFM? Is it yoga? Is it, yeah. I mean, it's a, there's a similarities uh, in, in all movement systems, but a GFM has a nice way to go about that and it is, is a good system. It partners with FMS and Strong First. So that's what I use. I, I, but that keeps my movement variability up. So I have a very structured and minimalist routine, but yet I get tremendous movement variability via my uh, movement prep. I love that. You know, going back to what you were saying before is like, sometimes as, as trainers, we think like we have to throw in every single variation and variety and just sticking to the basics is really important. Where do you look for inspiration? 
I mean, we all have moments of feeling not so inspired, but I'm curious, where do you look for inspiration? Well, my family, my father has been a tremendous example from a, a life and fitness standpoint. My mother, uh, another tremendous example, my grandmother, way back, my grandfather on both sides. I mean, I've just had a really tremendous examples from my family, my wife, people around me that uh, continually push and inspire me and push is probably too harsh of a word. I like to say I meet people where they are. And I think that's one of the trends now is for the people to be aspirational. Uh, that's the Instagram and you know f- social media thing. You, you try to put up these aspirational posts or you, you yourself try to be aspirational, be the example. That will get a physical response from me. Um, <laughs> and my, my friends within this community, very fortunate, very blessed. I have tremendous examples via my family and my friends that just keep me moving forward. And, and my general... I'm a little bit more in the stoic uh, direction philosophically. I certainly embrace memento mori. Remember, you will die uh, because no day is guaranteed anyone. And my job is to work and live a life. There's good days. There's bad days. From a professional standpoint, I'd say I'm uh, maybe 70-30, some days 60-40, where I think I should probably find something else to do. (laughs) (laughs) I think you know, there's an old saying, the uh, confidence of amateurs is the envy of professionals mm. um, because it's, I'm, I'm certainly have been doing this long enough to know I don't know uh, everything and I'm doing the best I can with, with what I have and uh, trying to move things forward. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Mm-hmm. What does a phone conversation between you and Pavel look like? I picture him a man of few words and you're like a pretty laid back, but also very funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will tell you, Pavel is a very funny guy, and he, oh, okay. has, he has a great personality, and uh, we, we talk training, we talk life. We uh, had the great opportunity just to hang out and, and uh, have a beverage or two with him uh, recently, and he is one of my favorite people. If it's a professional conversation, I'm usually asking him to uh, slow down and explain something to me about five minutes into the conversation. Uh, he has more knowledge in this than anyone else that I know. It's always enjoyable to have a chance to, to chat with him. And he uh, uh, certainly has a, a big personality, but it's, uh, he's a very private guy. Yeah, I love it. Where can people find you? Strongfirst.com and functionalmovement.com. I have my own website, appliedstrength.com, that I embarrassingly do very little with uh, because I'm just, uh, uh, I'm just busy. It's so many hours in the day. Yeah, exactly. only so many hours. And you have DVDs, right? Secrets of? Yes. Yeah. So with Gray, I have, uh, well, there's kettlebells from the ground up, one and two. There's kettlebells from the center dynamic. There's the Secrets of series. There's the online Indian clubs and Club Swing Essentials DVD and manual. There's a wide variety of stuff out there. And I do an article a month at least for uh, Strong First and uh, do articles for FMS. And, and so there's always a way to, uh, pardon me, see what's happening uh, up in the bowl of gelatin. <laughs> the brain bank yeah yeah brett thank you so much it's been so great our listeners are going to love this episode awesome thank you emily it was great to have the chance that's a wrap i have two truths that i fully believe in first to be one percent better every single day and second all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, 
Or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.